what great truths we just sang in those songs. You're the one true God. You have the victory because you rose in power. Shout the victory. We have victory because of what you have done, and you're a wonderful, merciful Savior. And we hunger for you. And whatever we hunger for is what we are willing to surrender all to. And so the question we have to ask is, what am I hungry for? What is our appetite for? As we talk today, we're turning to Ephesians chapter 2. I hope you have your Bibles. Go ahead and turn there, Ephesians chapter 2. I don't believe it's any accident that we're kind of studying Ephesians 2 during the context of what's happened within this week. Um, With everything going on, we've been going through this series of Ephesians And some people, whenever they read the Bible, some people may do a a read the Bible in a year, okay? Some people like to do that. I know some people do that every year, and they read through the Bible. And when you do that, you get such a larger view of God's Word and the whole story of what God's doing. We did this a year ago as a church, going through the entire Bible, and you kind of get that 30,000-foot view, a view you don't always get when you're down in the details of verse by verse. And so there are pros, there are cons to it. But then also when you study verse by verse, like we've been going through Ephesians, you get into the intricacies, the details, the, the minutiae of it, and it's great. There's things to learn, but then also sometimes you can forget a greater view of what's going on here. And so as we've gone through this chapter or verse by verse kind of, what we've done is kind of as we finish chapter one, we go back and we kind of review chapter one. And so now that we've finished chapter two, we're going to go back and So if we had a 30,000-foot view of the entire Bible, we zoomed into a three-foot view going verse by verse, and now we're going to zoom out to a 300-foot view, okay? We're just going to keep it all three, so it's easy. But we're going to zoom out and look at the whole chapter as a whole and kind of understand what is is Paul talking about? What is God teaching us in Ephesians chapter 2 here? And so as we look at this, we need to remember the context of which this is written. This is written to believers there at the church in Ephesus. But something we have to remember is there's some conflict going on. So someone once described uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is, is talking about salvation from God's point of view. Ephesians chapter 2 is salvation from man's point of view. And so it's a little more individualistic. It's more to us as man. We're seeing you were and now you are because of what God has done. And so as we look at this, we need to remember Paul is talking to a church that is divided because they have Jews and Gentiles. They have division, there's distinction, there's dissension, and so there's a lot of strife going on. And I think of that, and I think of our current climate, and I think how applicable to us today with everything going on from this past week to the past months to the past year. This is a very heavy time of division where we want to wear, a, as Pastor Kivett talked about, we want to have a banner over us. And what banner is that? Is it the banner of Jesus or is it the banner of politics? Is it the banner of different things? What is it that we're holding over? And so as we look at this Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see not only a story of salvation, but what it means for us. If we are saved and if we see who we were and who we are, then what does that mean for our unity with each other? And that's what we're coming to here. If you, uh, if you like to take notes, I would encourage you, you can easily keep up with this by simply keeping up with a list of you were and now you are, and you can keep up with those for yourself. But the first one we're going to look at is Ephesians chapter 2, as we start off in the first verse. It says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. They don't really sugarcoat it, do they? 
You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Somebody described this as really these three verses here to start off Ephesians 2 as one of the darkest, most pessimistic views of of mankind. It paints a very dark picture, very dim and very uh, gloomy picture of mankind if you don't have the rest of chapter 2. And so it talks about this. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Growing up in ministry, I've been, around, um, I've been around a lot of funerals and viewings, and even to this day, I just, I, I'm, not still, I'm still not comfortable with it. But I've seen a lot of things, and I've seen a lot of people who come to the viewings or come to an open casket, and they'll reach out their hand, and they'll hold the hand of the person in the casket, a loved one that they care deeply for. They'll lean down and kiss their hand or kiss their cheek or their forehead. They may whisper to them, I, I love you. Looking forward to seeing you again, or something like that. But can I tell you something that I've never seen? I've never seen the person in the casket clasp their hand back in return. (laughs) I've never seen that person give them a kiss back. I've never heard that person say, I love you too. And of course, this may be common sense to you, but why? Because they're dead. A dead person can do nothing to improve their state. What a dead person does is rot, becomes worse. And so this picture here, as God is describing us as we were, he says you were dead. If he wanted to use the imagery of sleep, he could have easily done that. He didn't say you were asleep and I just nudged you and woke you up. He said, no, you were dead. There was nothing that you could do to improve your state. You were just getting worse. You are in your sins and trespasses. And so something we have to realize as humans, we like to think better of ourselves than we really are. (laughs) But God makes it very clear. We were dead. We were not able to clasp his hand when he reached out to us. He picked us up out of the sea of our sins and transgresses that we were face down in, completely dead, with no life in our body at all, and he breathed in us the life necessary. We were dead. We did nothing. Moving on, number two, we see you were under the power of Satan, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were under Satan's power. Satan has power over the world. He has power over the systems, over the processes. He has power over the values. I think right now we can, we can see that very clearly in our world like never before. What God calls sin, the world most often praises and honors and lifts up. And it's something that's not done by God. It's something that is under the rule of of, of Satan. Now, here's the thing with Satan. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's limited. And so he has these powers, these demons with him that are working to control this. And so we are under, we are subject to his power. And we see how that manifests itself Even in this next point, you are under the power of Satan, but then also what that means then is you were powerless, but then moving on, you were living in the passions of your flesh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body 
and the mind. If you do not know God, why would you have anything other to control yourself than simply by the law of whatever you feel, whatever you think? Whatever your heart desires, whatever your body desires, whatever your mind wills and thinks and creates, what else would there be to control it? And so we very simply follow what we want. I want what I want. I want it right now. But then also, I want what you want. <laughs> we can see this most clearly, or at least I've been able to see this most clearly with, with children. Uh, not my children, of course, but others. Um, but we can see this clearly in children. And what's funny is with, with kids, you see them do something. You think, why would you do that? But then if you're really humble about it, you can look quickly enough and see, man, I still do the same thing. <laughs> maybe not in the same way, maybe not over, but I do the same thing in these other ways. And what's interesting is as kids play, they fight over a toy. I want this. No, I want this. Well, I want this. They've got nothing else to go off of. They go off what they desire, what their heart desires, what they want. But even more so, they, they have this desire, and I've seen this, where one kid will be playing with a toy, and another starts to play with a different toy, and they say, I was going to play with that. <laughs> that should be mine because I intended to play with it now that you have it. And we see it. Why would that be fair? It's not. But by what I want, I get what I want. I want what I want. And I'm going to do whatever it is possible to get what I want. They're playing good guys and bad guys. Well, I want to be the bad guy. No, I want to be. All right, well, I'm not going to play then. All right, well, you can be the bad guy. It's all out of a desire to, to get what you want. And in our flesh, in our sinfulness, under the power of Satan, being dead in our sins, we do the same exact thing. We're living under the power of our flesh, under the passions of our flesh, carrying out whatever our mind and our body desire. That's all that rules. That's all we have to follow. And therefore, it naturally follows that the last thing is you were children of wrath. You were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You have your due reward, the wrath of God on you. You get exactly what you deserved, the wrath of God, because you're living and dying in your trespasses and sins. This phrase, children of wrath, it's like saying... It's like saying children of poverty. It's naturally flowing from the other. It's naturally continual. It's this idea of it's not, you think of it as even being dead in our trespasses and sins. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's in our nature. We're just living by our nature that's naturally within us, our sin nature, our human nature that's following our desires that's under the power of Satan, that's dead in our own trespasses and sins. And it says they're like the rest of mankind. It's just like everybody else. All of mankind is under this you were column. But remember, Paul's talking to believers here, and so he's got a contrast coming. But he says all of the world is in this column at some point, and there's something to come. There's something to change that for some. But everyone is in this column. Everyone at one point in their life is dead in their trespasses and sins, under the power of Satan, living in the passions of your flesh, and under the wrath of God. But God. A great, great couple of words. Just two, but they have much more power. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, not because of anything we did. Why did he do it? Because of his great love. How reassuring is that? If it's based on his love that's never changing, then that means this truth is never changing. All of a sudden, then, we see the transition from you were to now you are. Because of what he did, because of his great love for us, now what he does is even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Even when we were dead, we were dead, now what God does because of Christ, through Christ's work, he makes us alive. Everything that our actions and our deeds and our thoughts and our sin had earned us, God, in love, now gives us what Christ has earned. Whereas we had gotten what we had earned, he gives us what Christ has earned now. We are alive together with Christ. We're with him in Christ. And so we're in Christ in his resurrection, in his life, in his ascension. We're with him so that when God looks at us now, he sees Christ's righteousness in our place instead of our own unrighteousness. And we are with him. Again, that phrase, with Christ, in Christ, is so many times in Ephesians. We are alive whereas we were dead. And then the next one comes, and raised us up with him. You're raised up with Christ. He made you alive in Christ, but then he also raised you up. And so whereas you were under the power of Satan and you had nothing to be able to change that, now as he raised Christ, giving him power over death and hell like we just sung about, giving him power over sin and over Satan and over hell, over death, he's got the keys, he's in control. He says, where is your sting? Where is your victory? You've got nothing on me. And so he raised us up with him, and now whereas we were under the subjection of the power of Satan, we now have power over Satan. Sin no more has power over us. But you say, well, I still sin. And I say, why? No. We do. We still sin, but the difference is it's not that sin has power over us. Now we have power over sin, and any power that sin has over us is simply what we've given what we give over to it, what we allow it to have over us. It has no power like it used to. We're in this sanctification process where sin has no power. Its presence is still here, but its power is not. And we're raised up with him. Whereas we were under the power of Satan, now we have power over Satan. Number three, you are seated in the heavenly places and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That phrase again, what does that mean? Whereas we lived in the passions of our flesh, now we're in the heavenly places sitting with Christ, and suddenly we're awakened. We're awakened to new desires, to new thoughts. We're no longer desiring just our glory and what we want and what our flesh tells us, what our heart tells us, what our mind tells us. Now we're awakened to what does God desire? What is best for God's glory? How can, I, how can I live for God's glory so that others may see my good works and give glory to Him? There's new desires there. There's new awakening. Our eyes are opened. Our senses are awakened. And so whereas we were living under the passions of our flesh, now we have new desires. We're in the heavenly places. We're able to see things from a different perspective. And then lastly, because of this, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He showed grace, grace and kindness towards us. Where our actions had earned us the wrath of God, Christ's actions has earned us grace and kindness. Look at that flip of the script. You were, you were this, and now you are, all because of but God. Because of what God did through Christ for you, it's applied to you as if it was yours, and now all of these things that were true are no longer true, and they're changed. And then he keeps going. He's not done. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. By grace you've been saved through faith. Your salvation is a gift. Your salvation is nothing that you've earned. Your salvation is nothing to boast in because it was all God. You were dead. What could you have done? Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, the only thing you brought to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. (laughs) That's humbling. You want to boast in something? Boast in how wicked you were. You don't hear that often, do you? Boast in how sinful you were. Get up and share how dead you were in your sins and how you were living out the fleshly desires that you had and boast about that because that's all you brought to the table. But then it goes on. It says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As I read that, I thought, that's kind of confusing. It said, there's nothing of your works that you've done to do this, but then you're saved, and so now go do good works. Well, which is it? (laughs) You're not saved by good works. You're saved for good works. God has prepared beforehand these things for you, and so you think of it as your good works cannot produce your salvation. Your salvation produces your good works. It's like a fruit. A fruit cannot produce the tree from which it is born from, the tree produces the fruit. And so he goes on and he says, all right, now we've talked about who you were, we've talked about who you are, and now remember it. Look at this word, remember. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Again, another bleak picture. You were without God. You were aliens and strangers. You had no right, no provisions under what God had promised to the Israelites. You had no right of that because you were Gentiles. You weren't even a part of it. You had no hope, and you were completely without God. Again, we get another but now, or another but at least. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And as 
For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So here we see you are now made near, you're made one, there's unity there, the broken wall of hostility has been torn down, he's abolished the enmity, and of the two he's made one. There's no distinction, there's no dissension, there's no division, there's a wholeness, there's a oneness there through Christ because of what he did for us. Here's the interesting thing, when it talks about this, you got to remember the context here. In the temple, the very center, there's this area, and you've got the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt for so long. Then you've got a thick, tall curtain, because that's where God's presence was. That's the place that only the, the high priest is able to go once a year. He's got to go through these uh, traditions and these things to be able to cleanse himself so that he can go back there. He has to offer sacrifices, all this stuff. Because if he goes in and he doesn't do this properly, he could drop dead just in a moment. And then there's the holy place right outside of that where the priest could go. And then there's more division. And then you have the court where the Jewish men could enter. More division after that. Then you have the area where the court for the Jewish women to come into. And then from there... You've got stairs, more division, down to where the court of the Gentiles were. And so what, God is, what God's doing here is he's talking more, think of that verbiage he's using, you are drawn near. During this time, there was a power of being able to be close to the presence of God and only the high priest could get the closest, and then the priests, and then Jewish men, Jewish women, and then Gentiles. Think of how far off the Gentiles were. Think of how disregarded they were. In fact, on the plaques, they found these plaques that would hang up that would say, if you enter into the court that you're not allowed to enter, Gentiles coming into the court of women, women coming into the court of the men, you could be killed, and you would only have yourself to thank for it. And so think of all the division there. And what God says is, listen, I brought you near by the blood of Christ. I tore the veil in two. My presence is within you now. So that all can come near. There is no division. But yet you still have division. You have still built these walls of hostility. If I've torn down the great wall of division between yourself and myself, how can you have any walls of division amongst yourselves? How is that possible? And what I want to say is, is even today as we think of this, as Pastor Kivett spoke last week, on earth as it is in heaven, what does that mean for us? 
if we're honest with ourselves, if we're humble enough, if we cry out to God and say, God, show me, search my heart, see if there's any wickedness in my heart, see if there's any division, distinction that I've built up, if there's been any walls that I've erected where you say no walls should be, we do this in and of ourselves. We build up these walls, and what we do when we do this is we say, ultimately, that the blood of Christ is not enough. What he says here is, this is all happening. This has been brought about by the blood of Christ, that these walls are torn down so that everyone can be near. And whenever we have these divisions among people, what we say is, Christ's blood's not enough for you. Christ's blood's enough for me, but not for you. Christ's blood is enough to tear the veil down so that I'm able to be with him, that we're able to be in a right relationship, that his spirit's to indwell me, but it's not enough so you and I can get along. It's not enough so you and I can be in a right relationship. It's not enough for us to be in unity. It's only enough for me to be in unity with God. The blood of Christ has to be either sufficient for all or sufficient for none, but it cannot be sufficient for some. And so what is it? We claim the banner of Christ. And we say that His blood covers our sins, but do we think it only covers our sins? Do we truly believe that it covers everyone's sins? Because in that case then, we have to be able to have unity with each other. And what he says is, if you keep this in mind, then remember who you are. So then now you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of the household of God. You're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you remember who you were, if you remember what Christ did, what it should produce then is citizens of one kingdom, members of one household, built on one foundation, parts of one building, one holy temple, and the whole time you're indwelt by one Spirit. There should be a unity. That should be the fruit of your salvation. If you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you are alive together with Christ, there's got to be unity. There's no room for division because of the work of Christ. Remember who you were. Remember what Christ did. And remember now who you are. What's interesting is so many times... As believers, we can be in different spots, maybe just situationally, circumstantially. Sometimes we can tend to just dwell over here in who we were and be so stuck in who we were that we forget because of what God did, now who we are. And what's neat is, as, as Jesus talks about the vine and we're abiding in Christ. He says, if, if you're not bearing fruit, he takes you away. 
And that word there is really meant as encouragement, as edifying, as lifting up. He lifts you up to help you produce fruit. And so be encouraged, be uplifted. If you're here where you're so focused on who you were that you can't see who you are, be encouraged. Look at what Christ has done so that you can see and rejoice in who you are now. You are not dead. You are not under the power of Satan. You are no longer bound by your fleshly desires. You are not under the wrath of God. But then what's also interesting is as you may tend to be over here where you're so focused on who you are that you forget who you were. You become, to, you become haughty in spirit, so uplifted and so uprighteous. Your nose is so high up, you can't see where you're walking. He says, remember who you were. Don't forget where you came from. You were just like everybody else. You were nobody special. Remember that. It's nothing you've done. It's by grace. Through Christ, through faith, it's what He did for you. And that's why we remember. May we never be so, so stuck in who we were that we can't see who we are. And may we never be so stuck in who we are that we forget who we were because of what Christ has done for us. Remember who you were, but also remember what Christ did. And ultimately remember who you are. God, we come to you. We need you. In and of ourselves, we want to be so prideful. We want to be in such control that we make it about us. God, humble us. Open our eyes. Allow us to ask you, God, is there any sin in my life? Help us to understand the depth of our sin that we were in before you saved us. And help us now to live in the new reality of who we are and what that means for us. We're no longer bound by that. We're now seated in the heavenly places in Christ with you. God, awaken us to what that means. Awaken us to the new desires, to a new will, to new intent. But God, ultimately, awaken us to unity, whereas division is so promoted and profound. God, Satan would love nothing more than division and dissension and distinction between us and others, and to think that we're better or right. And God, tear down our pride tear that down. Help us to see we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. We're no better. Bring unity for your glory, for your namesake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.